Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode number 24 of Thyroid Nation Radio Live talk show and podcast. I'm Dana Bowman, founder of ThyroidNation.com. And I'm Tiffany Maladnich of Grateful Garden Not Biz. Also known as Dana and Tiffany, bringing you the voices of thyroid advocates, clinicians, bloggers, and thyroid thrivers everywhere. Good morning, Dana. Good morning. In just a <laughs> In just a few short minutes, we'll be talking live with the very well-known naturopathic medical doctor, Alan Christensen, founder of Arizona-based practice Integrative Health, as well as best-selling author of The Adrenal Reset Diet, Healing Hashimoto's, A Savvy Patient's Guide, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Thyroid Disease. I love that. That's just mm-hmm. so funny. Mm-hmm. He was also the co-host of the wonderful Hashimoto's Institute, which I personally loved, and is the founding as well as currently acting president of the Endocrine Association of Naturopathic Physicians. That's very, very cool. Dr. C. has frequently appeared on national TV shows like Dr. Oz, CNN, The Doctors, and The Today Show, and he has also been a featured author in Women's World, USA Today, Newsweek, Shape Magazine, just just amazing. What an honor it is to have him with us today. But first, before we bring Dr. C on, there's just a few exciting things we want to share. Of course, please make sure to join us in the Hashi and Graves Facebook group. It's a place where we can all ask questions as well as get guidance, resources, and support from other people who understand and share the journey. And every now and again, if you're lucky, Dr. Alan Christensen will comment on your post. I have seen him in the group posting, so that's pretty cool, right? That's very cool. If you tuned in last week, we hope you did. You heard us chatting with the fabulous Dr. Donnie Wilson. It's her birthday today. Happy birthday. She was spectacular. What a dream. Wasn't she just wonderful? Uh, she She's enlightened us on so many things and we've just had such a great time with her so if you missed the show please go back and listen to that in the archives at thyroidnationradio.com well actually thyroidnation.com and there's a radio tab and uh, you could also see the lineup of the guests that we have coming up and the past guests and you can listen to the past shows and you can see who we got coming up we got Dr. Jill Carnahan we got Gina Lee Nolan we got Shannon Garrett one of our own team members and it's just a uh, it's a real pleasure to have all these people on. So if you guys want to check out the archives, you can do that, and you can see who we've got coming up as well. As always, a very, very, very big thank you to the listeners. We want to hear about your Thyroid Thriver journey too. So make sure to submit that story uh, to thyroidnation.com, Thyroid Thrivers, submit your story. And the key is is to share the journey. So it doesn't matter whether you're healed or not, as as we all know, it's a continual journey. So please make sure to submit that story. Uh, and there's a lot of people that can get a lot of information and, and helpful tips of healing on their own journey. All right, Dana, it looks like Dr. Christensen is with us. Let's get this thyroid nation thriving. Let's do it. Today our guest is the Dr. Alan Christensen. Hello. Hello. <laughs> hey, ladies. How are you doing morning. today? <laughs> Good morning. We are so good. good. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much. Glad glad to be here with you all. Wow. I'm in a flower field right off the top of the bat. Thank you so much for taking the time (laughs) to be with us today. It's just so cool. 
<laughs> my pleasure. This would be a blast. Uh, Dr. Christensen. And we can't, we can't help it. We can't help it. This moments where we just got to sit and reflect. So it's really wonderful <laughs> to have you on the show with us. Thank you. Thank you. We've, had, we've actually had some really fabulous guests. So, so we are we're feeling very lucky and grateful today to have you. So, okay, well, let's, yes. let's just start. Let's start. Let's just do this. I want to, I want everybody to, those few people out there who have never heard your story, I, I can't imagine who hasn't, but for those few, would you please share your story with us? I, um, I know you, you probably said it numerous times, thousands of times, but <laughs> we'd like to hear it again. We would like to hear it in full detail, please. Yes, please, please. You know, I, I think it's rather common for a lot of us in the healing arts space. A lot of us came here because of our own struggles, and I'm really no exception. I, you know, I was uh, an unhealthy child. I was a pretty fat kid by adolescence. And prior to then, I had a lot of issues with my brain, with seizures and complications from cerebral palsy. And it, it really gave me a strong sense of just, you know, what a frustrating thing it can be when your body doesn't work the way you want it to. And, and you've got a vision for how you want to live your life and how you want to be in the world. And you've got things holding you back from that. And that's, that's really rough. I, I was happy enough being a smart, nerdy, geeky kid and just focusing on, on space science. But like I said, I got really obese around adolescence. And about that same time frame, uh, also the whole you know, life changes for all of us. And we start thinking more about the social world and how people see us. And I had a pretty cutting comment in a gym class and this was seventh grade and, and it really hit me. And I, I realized that, yeah, things were not okay. And that I was happy enough inside my head and with my ideas, but there was a world outside of my head that I had to make sense of. And right. so I put aside my pile of books from Carl Sagan and astrophysics and got a new pile of books on fitness and health and just like started going through those. And it was pretty wild because I, I figured some things out that, you know, weren't revolutionary, but they made a difference for me and they helped me get things back on track. But I was left with a pretty strong sense of knowing that I had, I had sought out doctors. My parents had taken me to doctors and I had been given medications for my seizures. They had caused, you know, some side effects that have lasted to this day and other problems. And nothing that I really received from them helped me with the core issues of my coordination and my weight or things like that. And, and yet the stuff that I could figure out in a few books actually made a difference with that. And yeah, on one hand, I, was, I felt very empowered, like, wow, I can change my physical health. I didn't realize it was possible. But on the other hand, I was pretty disillusioned. I'm like, you know, there's this whole profession that's supposed to do this. And, and I'm sure that they're by and large well-intentioned. I'm sure there's a lot of circumstances in which acute care, emergency care is very effective and helpful, but there's obviously a lot of situations in which the best practices from the best minds aren't what make the difference. And right. it just propelled me on this journey. Yeah, and in, in medical school for me, I really identified with those that had thyroid disease in terms of the symptoms that they felt and they were struggling with. But also, there was so much less awareness then. And that's, that's changed a lot thanks to so many other you know, good authors and people like yourself who are getting the word out. But at this time, back then, a normal TSH was as high as 12. And wow. that's, that was the standard of practice, yeah. Dr. Broda Barnes' work was kind of new. It was very radical and really not heard of. But there was these strongly different ideas. 
And I got to see in my clinical training both approaches. You know, I saw some people that really followed the conventional model, and I saw some that had obvious severe thyroid disease, and they and they did they did somewhat better with treatment, no doubt. And I also saw those that followed pretty much exactly a model of checking via basal body temperature, you know, really ignoring lab tests and having a very narrow range of what was thought to be optimal based upon basal body temperature, but then just giving high doses of natural thyroid based on that. And really at that time, not a lot of thought into diet or lifestyle or other factors. And that approach, I saw some some really big home runs. I saw some people that had huge recoveries from fibromyalgia and you know other chronic conditions that were undiagnosed. But I saw a lot of strikeouts too. And I saw a lot of people that did not get much better or, or did have obvious side effects from thyroid treatment that was probably heavy-handed. So I was at a place of realizing, wow, there's a lot of people out here that probably have some issues related to this, and I don't really see any straightforward answers from either of these realms. And so I, I just felt compelled to take every level of training that I could find in the conventional world and the alternative worlds and sift through all the research and you know, work, uh, work with many patients and be very open about what, what my ideas were and getting good feedback from them. And I came to get a better, better model of making sense out of this condition. And that's been a, been a focus ever since now. It's been 20 years ago. That's incredible. Wow. That's incredible. It's just, you know, it's amazing how many doctors that really get it. Unfortunately, you know, like you said, they had to go through their own path of similar you know, not feeling well, that's just, it's just amazing. I mean, your story is amazing. Do you think that the thyroid, I know that you do so much with adrenals, do you think the thyroid inevitably, were you ever diagnosed younger with a thyroid uh, disorder or was it mainly, you know, other things? I personally was not. Yeah, for me it was more the more the seizures, the epilepsy, and then the physical limitations from cerebral palsy. But the, the core symptoms that I had from that in terms of just uh, muscle pain and weakness and you know, slower metabolism and mood changes, difficulty thinking, uh, I really resonated with those that had thyroid disease, understood what a lot of their issues were like from just dealing with those things firsthand. Wow. That must and have been we, and super so many of us, uh, Sorry, Dana. Go ahead. That's Okay. I've already forgotten what I was going to say. It's your turn now. I can't help it. <laughs> That's it. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Tim. It's amazing, amazing to see where you are today. You know, when you think back at that child, and, and I imagine you have moments where you go back and you're like, you're probably just like, wow, you know. And and so much of that was at your own hand, you know, helping your own healing and you know, Dana and I were talking about this morning with our own parents, you know, how they pretty much just get locked into, you know, what their physician has said, and they and they are stuck with that. You know, they don't think beyond, you know, hey, maybe there's something else at play, or, you know, they just, and they're older folks, of course, but, yeah. you know, they just, they're just, you know, seems- stuck to what the doctor has said, and they stay there, you know, like there's nothing else possible, you know, it's it's, it's so hard to watch, you know. Yeah, that's, that's a tough thing. And I don't know if it's I mean, a, a good trait or a bad trait across the board, but some some have a level of, of greater degrees of acceptance where they can say, okay, this is my lot, and they can move forward with that and perhaps make peace of it. And others have greater degrees of, of uh, lack of acceptance and you know maybe even obstinance, maybe traits that can be negative in some ways, but really just 
holding on to a, a, a future that's different than what the present is. Yeah, and, you know, we say, I think I say this every episode about my mom, but um, she honestly really is kind of exactly like that, stuck in that that mindset. And um, we're thankful to have doctors and people and, and whatever out there like you that are making, shaking things up, making things, you know, not <laughs> not like that, right? Because it's very frustrating. It's, it's very difficult to, to see and to be the daughter of someone who won't think outside the box and... And who has a radio show and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So, right? I mean, it's crazy. So, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things, I suppose. The generation, generation thing. We got to change it. We're changing it. We're trying. We're doing it. We're trying. <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> all right. Should you know, Doctor C? Tell us why you think that people with thyroid disease often still have symptoms, even though they're, you know, their testing may look normal and, you know, everything may just look ideal. Why do you think they still have symptoms? Yeah, that's an awesome question. That really brings up a lot, doesn't it? So someone has normal testing, they're still not feeling well. And uh, Marie Shaman did a survey quite a few years ago in which she asked a large group of people pretty much that question. You've been diagnosed, you've been on treatment and, how, how many of you are feeling better and which ways are you not feeling better? And it was upwards of 7% of people had substantial symptoms left. The biggest single one was fatigue, you know, persistent weight gain was part of that, depression, muscle, muscle pain and soreness are some of the top ones too. And I would argue it happens for a couple of reasons. Um, the, first, the first issue is having, having normal labs is not the same as having optimal thyroid function. There's a lot of data about our lab values and one, one camp, I, th- I see a lot of people go in one or two camps. You know, one camp says, heck with the whole thing of lab testing, there's all these shortcomings, just ignore the labs and, you know, base treatment ideas on symptoms. And another school of thought says, well, we've got to follow these guidelines and follow these, these ranges. And the ranges are, are great approximations for averages for the population that gets tested. You know, um, I'm not a great sports fan, but we've got the Phoenix Suns as our basketball team. And I tell people that, you know, normal ranges, we'll think of it like average height. If you wanted the average height for a man, and you went to the sun's locker room and measured the heights of the people there, you could, you could make an average out of that. But right. it wouldn't be a very meaningful average for populations that weren't in the NBA. <laughs> you know, right. I right. look pretty right. short based upon that average. <laughs> That's right. an awesome there's, there's example, some... actually. <laughs> really? That is yeah. a great example. I like that. <laughs> you know, the averages we go off of with thyroid tests, one, one school of thought has looked at those and put some thought and said, well, maybe these are not good. And they said, what if we take these averages and target the center of the average? And a lot of the approaches that chiropractors have taken have been based upon that, in which they say, you know, ranges of like two to three for the TSH are more often because they're dead center of the average. And I would say a better thought is to think about how these scores look in healthy people. Not so much just take the numbers at face value, but just say, if we have people that don't have thyroid disease, you know, how do their scores look? And the TSH gets the most bashing because it is the most different in terms of optimal scores from normal scores. Funny thing is that most other lab values like T3, T4, free T3, free T4, they're not really that different in terms of existing lab normal ranges and how the scores look in healthy populations. Some others have argued that those should be on the highest end of the range when you're healthy, but healthy people don't have them on the highest end of the range. They've got a pretty big distribution. 
The TSA hmm. scores are different. There was a larger study done in Turkey a while back. They took a large group of people and they excluded those who were pregnant, those who had known thyroid disease, you know, high scores of thyroid symptoms, you know, thyroid antibodies, medications that could change their thyroid values. They were all taken out. And the remaining people got lots of thyroid tests, primarily free T3, free T4, and TSH. And they were done repeated times over the period of six months. So what they got to see is that within healthy people, how different the scores were from one person to another uh, for each gender, and also how the scores changed from one person to themselves. So say, you know, uh, say Jane was in that study and they could see how Jane's scores were different in January than they were from February or March. So just a normal variation within one person and also oh, wow. variation from person to another. Yeah. And pretty That's interesting. interesting. But yeah, the variation from one person to another, like Jane in January versus Jane in March, was pretty much the same as the variation from one person to a different person. So healthy oh, people wow. had some fluctuations, but they were not bigger within themselves to within others. And the TSH scores were extremely tight in this group. They were from 0.35 to 1.9. And I looked at the raw numbers, and the 1.9 was actually a pretty big outlier. That was not, there, were, there were not other readings close to that. Almost 90, 98% of the scores would be encompassed between 0.4 and 1.5. And there was a strong median score of 0.99. But the free T3, free T4 scores, they were actually pretty much the same as they are in normal reference ranges. They did show more variation. And there's some strong reasons for that that I go into when I, when I train doctors in more detail on that. So the first thing I would say is if someone's values are okay and they're not feeling well is, well, maybe okay is not the same as optimal. And if someone already is on thyroid treatment, then there's no reason not to have that treatment be adjusted to where their scores are like they are in the healthiest populations. So the other thought about thyroid treatment is how close does that treatment mimic the body's own function? And a big concept in endocrinology is that when we're intervening, like we're treating diabetes, for example, we're trying to achieve the same state that someone would have were they not diabetic. So with thyroid disease, there's hormones that are lacking, and we want the body to have the same levels that it would have in health. And I'm a fan of natural versions of thyroid because you can get all three of the active hormones, the T4, T3, and T2. I'm pretty fussy about brands because Conventional doctors don't like natural thyroid, mostly because the most common brands are not very well standardized. It's a valid concern. There, there are brands that are better standardized and do not have binders or fillers. My personal favorite is WP Thyroid, which is a clean product that's better standardized than synthetics. So my first thought to answer that question is, are, is someone, do they have the values they would have in optimal thyroid function? And are they on thyroid treatment that best mimics healthy thyroid response? And then the next part is that, you know, thyroid disease is almost, almost exclusively Hashimoto's. There's so often cases where someone says, well, I have thyroid disease, but I don't have Hashimoto's. Do you all know exactly how you rule out Hashimoto's? How? Tell us. Please share well, with funny. everybody. We, we've got different types of diagnoses in medicine. So one kind of diagnosis is based upon specific findings, like you've got a broken leg. You know, so here's... Here's the picture of the break or not. You know, there's looking right, at the picture, right. there's no break. You don't have a broken leg. Or you've got hypertension, so your blood pressure is too high, or it's not. And so to rule it out, you measure blood pressure. Then there's diagnoses that are syndromes. So we've got things like PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, 
And with syndromes, there's a, there's a set number of symptoms or findings. And if you've got, you know, five out of seven findings, then you've got the syndrome, and it's based upon that. There's other types of diagnosis that are called histologic diagnosis. That means cell analysis. So histologic diagnosis, you may, you may infer or you may imply that they're present based upon certain things that point towards them, but the only way you can say they're not there is by doing a full cell analysis, which means to have those cells under the microscope and look at them. So Hashimoto's is actually a histologic diagnosis. It's not like a broken leg and it's not a syndrome. It's the finding in histology. It was first identified by Hiroko Hashimoto in his 1912 paper, and it was based upon a high rate of white blood cells that were infiltrating the thyroid cells that were forming hormones. So the only way you can someone, say someone does not have Hashimoto's is by examining their thyroid under a microscope. Uh, a lack of thyroid antibodies is not a lack of Hashimoto's by any means. Some have argued that 40% of those with Hashimoto's or more may never have positive thyroid antibodies. Wow. So they're, wow. Yeah, That's a there huge are, wow right there. Say wow. that again, please. For everybody, yeah, Dr. Christensen, honestly, say that again, please. What was the, say which part again? <laughs> <laughs> the one about the percentage of the population that will not have any antibody show. Mm. I've, yeah, if you do look closely and look at different studies, you will see ranges on this. You will not see one consistent answer. But the highest credible number I've seen has been 40% of those that 40% have Hashimoto's. 40% of people will yeah. not show antibodies that have Hashimoto's, that actually have right. Hashimoto's. That is, oh, my gosh, like we need to make a banner. <laughs> we do. <laughs> and fly that one because, yes, that is because so many incredible. people take that take that antibody test as, you know, just the gospel. You know what I mean? I had no antibodies, so I don't have Hashimoto's. Yeah. So 40% right. on, so on we'll say. Here's the No, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. I'm just going to zip it today, man. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> On antibody tests, you know, there's three that we measure in commercial clinical labs. We've got the antithyroglobulin, the antithyroid peroxidase, and then the thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin. But in research, there's been upwards of a dozen or more possible antibodies that can be involved with Hashimoto's, so most of which we can't test. The other issue about antibodies is they're, they come and go. And we see this with allergy tests, for example, or a lot of tests for infections, that you can test the same person over and over again and never get the same results multiple times. So I think wow. about antibody tests the way I think about psychics and astrologers. <laughs> and that That's is right. if what they say seems to make sense, like if a psychic says that I've got this great future ahead of me, then I'll believe in them. <laughs> right, right, right. If, if they say something I don't like or doesn't make sense to me, then I can dismiss it all as a whole bunch of, you know, bogus stuff. <laughs> right. And honestly, antibody tests are similar. If, if they do fit the clinical expectations, they may be useful to know about, but they do randomly go up and down. And a lot of folks with motors never have positive antibodies. So, so let me, what I was let leading me up to... I'm sorry, no, Dr. Let go me ahead. ask you two quick questions. So you mentioned 0.99. Is that a good general range that you see as a TSH for people that, that feel pretty good as a general rule? Well, as a general so, rule. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And people that are free of thyroid disease, that's a strong median score for their TSH ranges. So with thyroid disease, that's, that's often a good target. Now, one exception is someone that has structural problems. I'm a big fan of ultrasound studies, 
the thyroid cancer is the fastest increasing type of cancer in North America today among women. It's way on the uprise. And it's most common among those that have Hashimoto's. So if someone does have nodules, calcifications, precancerous findings, or if someone has a personal history of thyroid cancer, then the goal is to keep the TSH a little bit lower. Uh, I would argue that it's not safe to have the TSH lower than 0.4. There's pretty big bodies of data looking at people that have had a TSH lower for periods of time, showing that they've got higher risks of brain aging and strokes and congestive heart Interesting. failure and, and that's uh, a, hip that's fracture. That's a progressive issue. That's something that happens over time, not necessarily. I feel wonderful at 0.4 right now or for six months. That's something that's showing problematic in the long run is what you're saying. It, it is. It is. And, and it's a good point you brought up because there are those that say, hey, I feel better when it's very, very low. And I would, I would encourage someone to think that there's a separate concept between where you feel the best in the short term and what is in your best interest long term. And a lot of things, yeah, they can be a risk factor. But, you know, like for example, smoking, even we know smoking is hard on your body, but the majority of smokers don't get lung cancer. And everyone knows stories of, you know, grandpa, grandpa Billy, who smoked and drank and made it till 90. But that doesn't mean yeah. that it's not a risk. That doesn't mean that there's right. not a risk to it in general. And it's the same thing for a TSH too low. Many can do fine, perhaps, but there is just a higher rate of risk. So it's something that right. one should not ignore. And, and in, in the cases of those who are in those ranges, but not at their best, that does happen. And there's a lot to do, and, that, and they should be brought back to their best health. But that may not be a case to where simply taking more thyroid is the answer for them. That's often a matter of looking deeper at what are the causative factors behind Hashimoto's and then managing those other factors. And even some of those cases, one last point along those lines, they might feel better in the short term by taking more thyroid, but that doesn't mean that that's necessarily the path towards them having lasting, sustaining, safe, good health. Hmm. Flower field, I'm just stuck in the flower yeah. field. Yeah, Dr. yeah me too. You are, I know. I can't you are help saying, it. I know, you're saying so many things that, you know, are so important. So so two more quick things. Um, ultrasound is very important. How often do you do that? And how often do you test the antibodies? What's a good general rule of thumb for those of us that have to fight like hell to get an ultrasound done even in the first place or to get our <laughs> antibodies tested? How how often do you like to see that, to see those done? You know, two, two, big, two good questions, two separate ones. The ultrasound one, uh, a baseline, you know, the vast majority of people I see that have thyroid disease, they have seen a lot of other doctors. They've been treated for a decade or a couple decades. And boy, I'd be amazed how many have never had an ultrasound. I'd, I'd say probably 80% or so. so. So get one done as a baseline. How frequently from there? You know, at least every two years. But if there are findings that are worrisome, it may be more frequent. And for some, right, that things that are going a little awry. Yeah, if something looks odd, the radiologist gives some good feedback on what are appropriate steps for frequency or time frames, and by and large, those are good things to adhere to. As far as antibody testing, um, this is something to where, um, so lab tests, we think about how consistent they are over time. So let's think about height as a pretty good example. You know, when you're an adult, your height is not going to change a lot. I mean, you may lose a few inches as you age if you have like uh, bone thinning or whatnot, but by and large, your height is pretty much set. You're not going to go into your doctor's office in January and be, you know, five feet tall and next year be 20 feet tall. So it's not, it doesn't right. change like that. 
<laughs> but your antibodies can. Your antibodies can go from nothing to high to nothing to moderate in ways that are probably not meaningful. And if you do test someone often enough, you do see a lot of ups and downs that may not be relevant. So the question is, let's say everything else is great in terms of the thyroid scores are good, the person's functioning well. At what point are high antibodies a problem that you would address even if everything else seems fine? Well, you know, at what point do they change your steps? And there's, there's not a huge body of data on this, but there is some data suggesting that antibodies that are in the high four digits, you know, like 2,000 or greater for some lab ranges, may be an issue with fertility and may be an issue for cognitive function and mood symptoms. So if someone has concerns that way and the antibodies persist, even after everything else is dialed in, then they may be worth addressing closely. So I do always evaluate those in someone that I start working with. It's always good to get baseline readings of the antibodies. Something else, there's, I mentioned the three antibody tests. There's a fourth inflammatory marker that is often not tested, and that's called thyroglobulin. It's not antithyroglobulin antibodies. It's just thyroglobulin. And that's also a very important part of the baseline thyroid test. That's one of the main blood tests that gives a sense of risk of thyroid cancer, in all honesty. And if that marker does, if it's already very high or if there's a progressive increase of it, that's an, that's an alarming finding. So I actually watch that more regularly than I do thyroid antibodies. But if and someone like does have very... That's like pulling teeth to get that drawn. And usually they'll only draw it with someone who's had a history of thyroid cancer as a, as a sort of a reoccurrence marker. So you're saying that's a really important baseline test in, in all thyroid patients. Yeah, in terms of long-term risk, there's a lot more data about that being a value than the thyroid antibodies being a value. The thyroid antibodies can be helpful to establish the diagnosis of Hashimoto's, but as far as whether they go up or down, you know, I see a lot of people that they, they bust their butts and they do all the things that the popular experts are saying, like they're going gluten-free or they're, you know, changing their diet, and their antibodies get lower, and then they rejoice that's awesome. Or someone else may do the same things, the antibodies get higher, and they get upset and they second-guess themselves. And honestly, the antibodies go up and down sometimes despite whether they're doing things that are helpful or not. So one, one more point that you brought up is that lab tests in general – the, the thing that's happening over the coming months and year is that doctors are pretty close to being booted out of the whole lab test situation. I mean, there was a law yeah. passed. What, what state are you all in? I'm in California, Joshua Tree. And okay. I, well, I'm in, Costa, I'm in Costa Rica, so. Okay. <laughs> well, so <laughs> so we cover Arizona, a huge spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> we just had a law passed that was pretty historic. That was in the last month. And I forgot the exact name, but basically what the law says is that there have been a lot of labs that people can go through on their own to get tests done, but all those labs did have somewhere to where a doctor signed off on the tests, that it was a lab director or something that was ultimately responsible for it. So Arizona has even gutted that to where hmm. there's no doctor who did sign off at all for any lab tests. You can have tests done, and your insurance still has their own options to pay or not pay. And, but that's going to be a sweeping trend in the short-term future. So already you can you can go to many online places or more and more local services like any lab now or some states, some areas have Theranos or there's like Life Extension Foundation. So there's more and more places to where you can just get the test done you wanted. But yeah, in the very short term future, that will be the norm that anyone can get the test they want anywhere and the bulk of those will even be for their same insurance. And, and you hey, have Theranos in Arizona. Was, that's, Sorry. that's what I was going to say. Yeah, very <laughs> cool. That's very you do. cool I've, that I've you been, have that there. 
yeah, I've been working with them, and we're we're pretty excited about what some things they're offering. It, it's very. I Great. can't wait till they get to California. They are in some markets, but yeah, they've got a lot of growth left to do in California. They're, they're in Pennsylvania now as well, but they're they're set to expand pretty fast. All right. So we've covered a few things. Okay, we're going to head into a, a somewhat controversial subject, and uh, I can't wait for you to to talk about it. Tell us about iodine, Dr. C, and, was, and how you I feel about that. I was thinking that's where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, yeah. we're a hive mind, a hive mind this morning. <laughs> yeah. So let me, let, me back, let me back up a little bit further. Um, there was a, there's a great... There's a great book I was just listening to, an audible book about statistics and evaluating things like political campaigns, disease trends, um, sports, uh, terrorism, all these economics, all these things you can track through numbers. And this person argued that there's two main types of experts. He calls them hedgehogs and foxes. So hedgehogs are those, and I don't really get, there was some essay that was written quite a while back that those came from, but they're not like obviously intuitive categories, but Hedgehogs are those who make strong proclamations based upon rules, like someone has a, a strong political ideology and they say, well, this is the way it is because this is what my party says it is. And, and then hedgehogs, I'm sorry, foxes don't really have strong, consistent, clear ideologies or theories. They really gather a lot of little bits of data and they say, well, this might be here because of this finding, but this thing might be different because of this finding. And they won't necessarily line up with party lines, for example. And what happens is that the hedgehogs, those that have very simple rules that they base their ideas off of, they tend to be very vocal and oftentimes very easy to understand because you know what their message is and you can predict that, you can feel comforted from, from that. Whereas foxes, on the other hand, often do qualify their answers. They say, hey, you know, this is what I see based on this data, rather than coming out and saying, this is the truth because it, this came down to me in a vision, you know? <laughs> so foxes are often not, not as dramatic in their proclamations. But when you look over predictions over time from economic or political forecasts, the foxes are right the vast majority of times because they're qualifying their, their statements based upon data, not based upon principles or concepts. So iodine there's been some recent hedgehogs that have entered the fray and have said that, yeah, this, that the whole story behind it is that um, a man who's a gynecologist about, oh, now 20 years or so ago, he looked at the concept of iodine for fibrocystic breast disease. And there have been several papers showing that high-dose iodine, very high-dose in terms of nutritional needs, will reduce the symptoms of fibrocystic breast disease. No, de no debate about that. So this person saw that and then thought to generalize. And he thought, well, maybe this means that we really need a lot more iodine than we get. Maybe we really need these megadoses because these megadoses help this condition. And this person went on to form some elaborate theories. And he, he made some, some statements that I can just about quote verbatim saying things like, you know, iodine, the amounts that we must need nutritionally because of the fibrocystic breast disease are actually a lot higher than we ever could have gotten in the past. So therefore, iodine must have been at radically higher levels prior to the flood of Adam and the flood of Noah. And so he argued that, and I'm, I'm, this is, these are quotes, but he argued that in the Garden of Eden, we had thousands and thousands of times more iodine than the soil has now. 
and it's been washed away to keep us in a zombified state. Mm-hmm. So on the other hand, and then, and then those ideas are used to base these high-dose recommendations for iodine. And then also with this theory, this person argued that we must need a lot of iodine, and if we take a high dose and we don't pee it all out in a day, then our bodies must have needed that. Then that shows how much we need. So this, this idea basically says, yeah, we now need 400 times more iodine than we ever thought was safe before, and that if you take a high dose of it and it's not all recovered in a 24-hour urine sample, that's proof positive your body had to have that. And that's, that's kind of where the whole iodine new, I, these new ideas came from about two decades ago. Um, and back up a little bit, so iodine is actually the most studied nutrient on the planet by a lot. You know, the, the Chinese knew thousands of years ago that if someone had what we would now call goiter, that you could feed them burnt seaweed and they could get better from that. And iodine is one of the first chemical elements ever isolated in modern chemistry. It was in the 1700s. The name itself comes from iodes, or like French for violet, because it makes like a violet color when you chemically isolate it. So we've seen that thyroid needs, thyroid needs iodine to work. But we've also seen that practically there's rather a narrow range. So um, there's this great, this great huge monolithic book that I spent way too much time with. And they summarize thousands and thousands of human clinical studies on how much iodine a population has and how much thyroid disease they get. So if you're very low in iodine, we see more goiter and we see more enlargement, you know, proliferation of thyroid disease. But if you get high iodine, we see more autoimmunity form. And so it's not a, it's not a coincidence that Hashimoto's disease is called Hashimoto's disease and not O'Malley's disease, you know, and what I'm saying is that it was identified among a Japanese population as opposed to an Irish or a European population, because right. those with a higher iodine intake have higher rates of Hashimoto's. And in fact, hmm. in, the, in the United States, we have pockets that are quite a ways away from the ocean and very close to freshwater that have lost a lot of iodine in the soil. They have lower iodine in the soil, and they've been called goiter belts historically. So before iodine fortification and salt, if you were a kid in school in Michigan in the early 1900s, you know, about a third of your classmates had goiters. It was very common. And within a decade of iodine fortification, that goiter rate plummeted to about 3%. It went down tenfold. So it was a huge win. But that's when autoimmune disease started in, in America, was after iodine fortification. So it's really a double-edged sword. So that that iodine compendium and that range of iodine intake that represents the lowest risk of thyroid disease is between one to 300 micrograms. So, so yes, you can get too little iodine if you are vegan, not using iodine fortified salt, if you're on a raw food diet, if you're pregnant and your nutritional needs are a little bit higher, but you can also get too much iodine. And that's the thing that I've seen often happen in natural medicine is that we, we assume all of our therapeutics have just an infinite amount of safety and that the more you take, the more they do something good. But it's really never like that. There's always, you know, like water, for example. I mean, you can be dehydrated, but you can also drown or you can become hyponatremic from drinking too much. So Amen. iodine has a safe... And yeah. So I, iodine I has see a it all the time range. in Joshua Tree. People keep drinking water <laughs> when they're already dehydrated and they dehydrate themselves further. It's, uh, most people don't understand that. It's... It can be yeah, a very serious problem. 
You know, that's how whenever you're sad story about someone dying in a marathon or an Ironman, they usually overhydrated and they got hyponatremic. They washed with their blood sodium. So the other thing about iodine is that there's iodine in thyroid meds. So those who are taking thyroid medications, they're getting a substantial dose of iodine in their medicine. And between that and what people have almost inevitably in their diet, people are often within that targeted range already or maybe at the higher end of it. So this new, this new group of those who are encouraging high-dose iodine, they're encouraging doses that are commonly as high as 12,500 micrograms, 25,000 micrograms, or 50,000 micrograms. And based on thousands of human studies, people who are prone to autoimmune thyroid disease, they get more autoimmune thyroid disease and more complications the higher they get above 300 micrograms daily. And I learned about all these iodine approaches from just patients of mine who were either existing patients who were getting sick in odd ways because they were trying out this megadose iodine or new patients who came in with odd versions of thyroid disease that are classically known to happen after megadose iodine. Wow. Wow. No, yeah, that's a definite flower field moment because so many people – all the time on my page on all the groups they're always talking about iodine and and that's just a, a really good thing that you just said i mean i'm i'm just kind of sitting here trying to take it all in because everybody has a different approach or different thoughts on it which is a little scary and it's such a you huge know? debate i mean it's a huge right. debate it's you know and the funny thing is that in this this is a great 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 learning learning process too. Apart from iodine, but just in terms of how you evaluate claims in general, it's actually not a debate in the nutritional sciences world. Like if you look at the the areas that look at iodine fortification, you know, so a lot of the developing world does not have iodine fortification, and there's props from that. There's a real high rate of congenital hypothyroidism and poor cognitive function because it's a big issue. But there's no one in that world who's been like in the WHO that's tracked large large populations receiving iodine, for example, no one in that world is debating about the range of need because they've already done the studies and there's been thousands and thousands of them done. And we know what levels of iodine yield the least thyroid disease and which levels lead the most complications. So in the people whose jobs it is to actually figure those things out, they're not having these radical debates about, you know, 200 micrograms or 20,000 micrograms. It's not going on there anymore. Right. And people can always, if they really want to look closely, do the actual, do the research. You know, look, look at primary research. Don't look at popular books that are made for the public, but look at citations. And if you look at popular books made for the public, look closely at their citations. And unfortunately, a lot of the citations in some of those books point back to other books by the same authors. Or if you look at the citations, they may point to studies that don't really support the conclusions. So, um, yeah, don't take my word for things, but just look at actual primary research and look look at the work being done worldwide to help correct the real problem of iodine deficiency in places that it's happening in and look at what those researchers are finding. They've, they've got this pretty well sorted out. They're not, they're not having debates in the world that are, that are really working on this problem. Right. And most people's, most people's huge argument is, you know, I think for people that maybe aren't aren't very well read is is well, what about the Japanese? You know, and their, you know, ten thousand time iodine levels that they intake with kelp and all that. You know, I think sure. that, so that's I've, something you. I've you looked see at that lot, one. You know? I've looked at that one. I've looked at that one really closely. So, there was one citation used by some of the iodine fans, arguing that the Japanese consume roughly tenfold our intake. 
But some scholars have written and looked at that exact topic, and there was a confusion between the iodine content in wet seaweed and the iodine content in dry seaweed. And they based the seaweed intake of the population on the wet intake and then the iodine load in the dry intake. So they do consume more than we do. They probably consume about 1,100 to 1,500 micrograms a day on average, which is more than we do. But again, they also have higher rates of all types of thyroid disease, including Hashimoto's, which is where it was discovered, and thyroid cancer. They see more of that. And we see this in populations that, this is, this is a paradox, is that even populations that need more iodine, that are low in it, when you fortify iodine, even to levels that are appropriate, you will see a bump in rates of thyroid disease in terms of Hashimoto's and also grades that get unmasked in the coming decade. So whenever a population has the whole intake go up substantially, there's higher rates of thyroid disease. And there's been so many case studies of populations that have had fortification not done well, and they got perhaps a few thousand micrograms per day on average rather than a few hundred, and they see very high rates of autoimmune thyroid disease show up. So yeah, we don't really need to reinvent the wheel. This has been given a lot of very serious scholarly thought. And the arguments for it often go along the lines of either, well, I took a lot and I felt better, or I had a test showing I was low in iodine. And the first one, you know, taking a lot and feeling better, uh, the, the rate of doing anything and feeling better or doing anything and feeling worse is about 30% both ways. You know, we talk about placebos and nocebos. And anytime that you intervene in some way, there's a good chance that you may perceive it was helpful or, or may not. And you've got to realize that a lot of that is not, a, not so much a meaningful difference. But high-dose iodine is actually the most consistent way to shut off your thyroid. So we had, the, we had the Fukushima nuclear disaster several years ago, a real tragic thing, and that brought everyone's attention back to high-dose iodine as a way to protect against radioactive iodine. And it protects because it shuts off your thyroid. So there's a mechanism by which your thyroid concentrates iodine. And if you ever get a lot of iodine, rather than have your thyroid put out so much thyroid hormone that it would stop your heart, it blows the fuse and it shuts off your thyroid for about three to four weeks. It's called the Wolf-Chaikoff effect. And that's how high-dose iodine protects you against radioactive iodine. If you think you're going to be exposed to radioactive iodine and you're in, a, you're in the, the, age, the age and um, health status to where it may be relevant for you, and you've got a few days notice before you're going to be exposed, yeah, you can take high-dose iodine and make that radioactive iodine not cause thyroid cancer because you won't absorb it because your thyroid shut off for a few weeks. <laughs> so the other thing about wow. iodine testing is, yeah, the, the 24-hour challenge iodine tests, they don't really represent iodine status. And there was a laboratory, uh, ZRT Labs, that did a clinical study on this, and they showed that, yes, when you do consume a megadose of iodine, it does go out in your urine, but it doesn't take 24 hours. It takes several weeks. So a 24-hour study is not a meaningful time frame. And we've seen this also in populations, and we check how an iodine urine level changes in a population after they go on iodine fortification. And it does go up, but that takes about three to six months. So the idea of the challenge test is not, not really a valid way to gauge that. Okay. That's, yeah, yeah. flower field. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, since we both have issues with thyroid, then, you know, it takes us a little bit longer, too, Dr. C, because, you know, we've got a little brain fog and all that stuff going on. So sometimes we may just be silent. So you're just going to have to <laughs> just bear with us a little bit. 
just resonating with us. And, and you know, as you said, the um, there's not really a debate, but, you know, it's, it's good to know. And I'm, you know, gosh, I wish all the doctors would, would see it your way because I have several doctors who who, who don't. So, um, yeah, that's great. Good to know. That is good to know. That's I'm still in the flower field over the over the whole iodine thing, because it's just <laughs> people that are iodine proponents. It's it's almost like they can't hear you. They can't hear any. You know, exactly. um, they're just completely. Well, and, you know, it's it's frustrating. You know, because iodine can cause big problems for certain people. You know, uh, like with me with can. having kidney issues, it can be a big big problem. It it can, and that's also back to what I was saying earlier about. For example, like a, like a suppressed TSH. Not all people see problems in a short period of time. It's a risk factor. And, and someone can say, you know, but I've done a high dose for the last many months. It's been fine so far. There's a bad joke about what a man said, you know, after falling 80 stories down the Empire State Building. You know, so far, so good. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't mean it's always going to be okay. <laughs> Just because it's been okay so far. <laughs> Right, right. That's great. I like that. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) But that goes back to the hedgehog and the fox. It's like, what do we base decisions off of? Do we base them off of concepts and proclamations? Do we base them off of data? And if we look at the data on just populations, how much iodine they've consumed and their thyroid health, that's been sorted out. The other, the, the mega dose comes more so from theories and proclamations, not really data observed from populations. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm in an aromatherapy minute. I think I need an aromatherapy <laughs> minute right about now. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's that's just it's such a huge subject and you know you hear your you know you Dr. C talk about this like it's just as easy as butter to comprehend. You know, so logical. Yeah. It seems very logical, and you know, of course, I, I from what I've read, I'm in you know 150 percent complete agreement. And yet, you still see some crazy smart people that are just out on a limb. That that it just it floors me. It it, it reminds me of the gluten and the goitrogen subject, which I know <laughs> we'd like to talk about as well with you. It just it's one of those things where. You know, uh, you get some really smart people that are in disagreement, and um, yeah, you know, for the rest of us, you know, you're going back. It's like a ping pong game. You're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, because you know these people are well read and they're very smart, and and uh, it's it's a a source of contention for the thyroid community. I think you know, we you would know, love. Again, I remember simplest, when. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say the simplest thing for people is just really not so much who do you listen to, but how do you, how do you make decisions? And I'd say that, you know, based decisions based on experts that are sharing things that have happened, like here's an actual outcome study versus theories. Like, here's how I think it should work. You know, like I, I could say from my home, I want to drive to the airport and I've had this theory about if I take this road, that road and the other road, or someone else could say, well, I just made the trip, you know, and here's, here's what worked. And it's just better to base data upon, actual findings, you know, populations that did this, what happened to them? Not so much, here's how I think the world should work, but here's how the world has been working and here's the numbers behind that. <laughs> right. Right. 
Well, and a lot of people don't understand that, you know, I, I remember one study that I read one time, and, and you know, don't quote me verbatimly, but 1940s, um, they actually started harvesting kelp to counterbalance uh, too much soy consumption. And they, so they had thyroid issues, like you said, I you know, heard you say it, where they had thyroid issues beforehand. And so it wasn't like they've just been historically consuming kelp forever. You know what I mean? That was something that, you know, seemed in this particular fairly credible article that it was something that came around uh, the early 40s. I don't know if you're familiar. I can't think of the name of the study, but... Um, I'm not yeah, seeing that particular it, paper. I apologize. Oh, no, that's okay. I, maybe I'll forward it to you. It was something that really uh, threw me for a loop because, you know, everyone talks about kelp being historically, con, you know, consumed in Japan. And that's, you know, like I said, that's one of those, you know, really often brought up... Um, you know, Japanese consumption of kelp in the subject of iodine. You know, Sean Cruxton, when he did, and I can't remember what it was, but everybody was recommending that there be like an iodine off, you know, meaning like to have a um, a showdown yeah. <laughs> on iodine. And I can't remember. I want to say it was right around um, the Hashimoto's Institute where they were saying, you know, because you had some experts that were saying yes and no. And, and someone asked Sean Cruxton if he would do a, an iodine off, meaning that, you know, have like this showdown <laughs> on the iodine subject, and it was brought up, and everyone, yeah, everybody was like, "Oh, do it, do it, do it!" You know, <laughs> I'm right. just gonna stick with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna stick with Doctor C. Me too. I'm just gonna stick with Doctor C too. <laughs> no more debates for me. I'm I'm good. I'm good. All that made sense and resonated with me, and it's stuck in my brain, and so that's that's what I'm sticking with. That's it. Perfect. But I do so want to. Have... I do want to talk. Oh, to go you. ahead. Go ahead, Dana. Sorry. No, that's okay. I was just going to say, do no, okay. you have a recommended amount that you like? You know, do you stick pretty much with the RDA 150 micrograms, or, you know, is it more obviously if people test slower, or, or how do you evaluate iodine status in, in your particular clients, and what, what do you like? Well, that's a tough thing. I've looked a lot of, I spent a lot of time looking at the best ways to test iodine because that'd be a fun way to diffuse a lot of these arguments. And there's not really an accurate way to do so. Uh, the 24-hour challenge test is just no one, no one in the nutritional world really takes that one seriously, except for the iodine world, that, not the newer <laughs> iodine world. But the, there's, there's urine iodine tests, and they're really good gauges to see how much iodine a population has. You do thousands of people, and you can figure out you know, what the average intake is. But the tough part is that any one person, their reading on Monday could be so different from their reading on Tuesday that you have to test them a lot for it to be meaningful. And by a lot, it's actually about 300 times to be within 90% accuracy. And then there's 24-hour urine iodine tests. And those make them more accurate. Then you've only got to do about 150 tests to be within 90% accuracy. <laughs> so there's, there's blood iodine tests. There's protein-bound iodine. Um, yeah, there's, there's not great ways. But everyone does absorb iodine pretty consistently. So if you know someone's iodine intake, you know what their day-to-day iodine statuses because there's no there's no common issues of absorption so in terms of intake the not so much because of the rda but the the book i was referring to the iodine compendium and that synthesis of thousands and thousands of human studies that range that sweet spot with the lowest risk of thyroid complications is about one to three hundred micrograms so that's that's a good target uh, those who are pregnant probably need about an extra hundred micrograms but in terms of dietary intake, 
uh, raw food diets can get lower and vegan diets can get lower. And in those cases, you know, using fortified salt, fortified sea salt even can be an easy way to get enough. But apart from those circumstances, the average dietary iodine intakes have been pretty consistent. And the irony is that we're running a little bit higher. and we, we could see that start to change a little bit because our diets are getting higher in salt. Uh, most of our salt now is coming from processed foods. And that's uh, grocery store pre-made foods like meal assembly or restaurant foods. And oddly, those are not iodine-fortified foods. So there's, there's a risk if we move further that direction that we could get marginally lower. I'm a fan of some, some sea vegetables a few times a week. You know, there's the nori snacks, there's wakame, there's doles. They're real good things. They, they're absorbed well. You know, seafood in general is a pretty good source of that. Uh, those with thyroid disease on thyroid meds, between the diet and the medications, you're probably already on the upper portion of that limit. So in those cases, the strategy is often to not go way above that limit. And that's often one way that I will see people have just better results to their treatment and you know, symptom improvement and lower antibodies and more stable dosages because I'll look at their total iodine intake, including their medication, and I'll make recommendations to stay within that target and not exceed it. And that might look like avoiding multivitamins that have iodine. You're looking at iodine-free multivitamins or little steps like that just to go out, just, just not get those few extra 100 micrograms. And, and didn't you say, I want you to go back if you don't mind and tell us, didn't you say uh, that medications, like you said, have iodine in it? All of the they do. medications? All they of do. Them? So that all of them. Okay. So they're, they're, T4, they're T4 and T3, or also T2 in natural thyroid. And all those numbers, the four, three, and two, those are iodine atoms. Iodine. So a rule, right. a rule of thumb is that 100 micrograms of T4, like levothyroxine or Synthroid, or a one-grain dose of natural desiccated thyroid, like Armour or WP Thyroid or Nature Thyroid, any of those things is approximately 130 micrograms of iodine. So, oh, wow. you know, 200 micrograms or a two-grain dose, that's now 260 micrograms of iodine. So you've got a wow, fair amount in the thyroid meds. That's that's interesting. I did not know that. Tiffany, I don't yeah. think most people really know that. No, huh? No. I did not know that either. <laughs> but that that's wow. good to take into account when considering someone's, you know, one to three hundred microgram daily target. Yeah, because I take three grains of natrophoid a day. So that's that's interesting. So in, in, in those cases, the action step is to really minimize a lot of extra iodine. You definitely wouldn't want to get any iodine through supplementation. And I even I would even minimize some of the densest food sources because, yeah, you're, you're at an upper limit. And every every amount you go above that makes it harder to really so, – so a common cycle is that thyroid, iodine, it stops the thyroid. So, like, for example, I heard you all do work with people with graves as well. So if someone has graves and they're in thyrotoxic storm, the, um, all the meds that treat graves, like the propothiurazole and the methimazole, the tapazole, they work by slowing iodine uptake, but they, they take four to six weeks to work because the thyroid already has a four to six week supply of iodine in storage, so they can't work in the moment. But if someone's in thyroid storm, the most effective way to stop their thyroid, do you guys know what that is? No. Megadose iodine. That's it. Yep, potassium, high dose of potassium iodide because a high enough dose engages that Wolf-Chaikoff effect and can shut the thyroid down in a matter of days, whereas nothing else can do that. 
So right. the higher you get above that iodine sweet spot, the more you're engaging that thyroid shutoff mechanism. So I'll see a lot of people who are on a, a higher dose of thyroid than common, and they're saying, hey, I still feel tired, I still can't lose weight, my hair is still thinning, and we take a good inventory and we see that they're getting a few extra 100 micrograms of iodine. Maybe there's 100 micrograms in their multivitamin or 150, or maybe they're taking some thyroid support products that have a few hundred micrograms, or they're eating a high amount of seaweed, or they've got you know, higher dose iodine pills. And so their bodies are fighting the thyroid hormones. Even though they're taking a lot, they're not really getting the benefits out of it because their body's in a thyroid resistant state. So just by lowering their iodine intake back to the range, <clears throat> I've seen a lot of times where someone actually needs less thyroid hormone and they feel a lot better from it. Mm. Wow. That is something that rarely gets said. You never, 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 never hear that. No, you, know, you don't. One of the and biggest pitfalls I'd love to... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, do you have, you know, obviously, would that change with, say, for example, a, a Graves patient that came to you that just came out of RAI and how they deplete the iodine and do all that? Is there a special and different protocol for those particular patients with you? Or is it pretty much um, then, you know, still food as well? In other words, does anything change there between a true hypothyroid and a hypothyroid who's coming out of Graves? So now, RAI? radio. So the, the radio iodine ablation, it doesn't actually deplete iodine from the body. It, it, it injects, you do get into a low iodine state for a period of time, and then you ingest radioactive iodine to ablate the thyroid tissue, but there's no lasting change in, in iodine needs nutritionally. And as far now as don't they, what iodine... Don't they restrict them from iodine diets? Yes, um, beforehand. They put them on iodine-restrictive diets before REI, though. They do, and then afterwards, however, the body doesn't have there, there's, the body doesn't have different iodine needs than it would otherwise. So, and, and iodine needs, we're we're still not clear on any anything the body needs iodine for apart from making thyroid hormone. So, if someone does have radioactive ablation, in almost all cases, they are left hypothyroid afterwards. In a small percent of cases, end up what we call being euthyroid or being normal thyroid output. But most are hypothyroid, meaning they need thyroid replacement. And so same thing, their thyroid replacement will contain iodine by and large. But they will not have higher nutritional iodine needs afterwards than they would have had otherwise. Gotcha. Hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, this is going by really fast, and I have a couple things I want to talk to you about. If you don't mind, Dr. Christensen, I want to jump into some adrenal action because you've got the adrenal reset diet, and I have adrenal issues, and so do a lot of people. So awesome. I wanted I to ask better. you, I, yeah, I wanted to talk about, um, you know, do you think it's important to treat before, you know, you do any kind ah. of thyroid, uh, yeah, because that, that happened to me. So let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, that comes up a lot. Someone says, well, you must do X before you do Y. Or you've got to do Y before you do X. So adrenal and thyroid issues are in whole different ballparks. And if someone has problems with either, they both need to be addressed. And there's not really a sequence per se, but they're both important. You wouldn't want to do one and ignore the other. So it's important okay. to address both. But the first, the first thing is more of a concept than anything. And that is that adrenal dysfunction is dysfunction or it's dysregulation as a term used in a lot of clinical research. It's not disease. So the difference is that, you know, most thyroid disease is disease. It's Hashimoto's. And what's happening is 
what the gland produces is not what the body is asking for. You know, you keep making a higher amount of TSH and you get less and less hormone out of the gland eventually. So your gland is not doing what your body wants it to do. Adrenal dysregulation, adrenal dysfunction, it's very prevalent, it's very real, not a disease. Adrenal diseases like Addison's or Cushing's disease, those are conditions that are like Addison's disease is pretty much um, Hashimoto's of the adrenals. That's where the immune system attacks the adrenals. And so rather than a TSH, we can look at an ACTH. And that's the brain telling the adrenals to make hormone the same way the TSH is telling the thyroid to make hormone. And in the case of Addison's disease, we'll see low cortisol and we see a high ACTH. So what's happening is the brain, the pituitary, is telling the adrenals, I want you guys to make some cortisol. And the adrenals are saying, well, I don't know, like a, what Mr. Scott or Mr. Scott, of, the engines can't handle it, Captain. You know, they're, they're, they're <laughs> saying, we're, we're doing our darndest. You know, we're trying to put some cortisol Jim. out. But <laughs> yeah, Jim, we're, right. we're doing our darndest, but they're, they're about to blow. We can't make anything. And Hashimoto's same thing. Somewhere along the way, and we can, there's debates about, you know, with TSH scores, but the big picture is the body wants the thyroid to work more than the thyroid is able to work. Now, in adrenal disease, that's the same thing. In Addison's case, you can see a really high ACTH and you can see low cortisol. Now, that's not the same as, that, that's real, but it's rare. That's like a few people per million. What's very common, though, is the adrenal dysfunction or adrenal dysregulation. The difference is that the adrenals are doing exactly what the brain is asking them to do. So if there's low cortisol, there's not a high ACTH. There's low cortisol because the brain doesn't want them to make cortisol. And if there's higher cortisol, there is a higher ACTH. It's higher because the brain does want there to be more cortisol. So I think the most important first step is to realize that it's not an accident. And most doctors that I see address this, they don't get that point. And they would see someone who's tired and has low cortisol, and they'd say, oh, we'll just take hydrocortisone. And that's not what the body wants. There's not a higher ACTH. The body is not, the body's not saying, hey, these lazy adrenals aren't giving me some cortisone. I need help. The body's saying, I don't want these adrenals to make cortisol right now. I've got to chill and regroup and regroup and repair. So adding in cortisol, whether or not there's short-term benefits to energy symptoms, is really not in line with what the body is asking for. It's a state of dysregulation. So that can overlap with thyroid disease. There's reasons for that. You know, cortisol can affect the cellular and the mitochondrial uptake of thyroid hormones. So they can overlap. But if they're, if they're both off or diseased, it's not so much that you would treat the thyroid and, and the adrenals would, would you know, correct their dysregulation or vice versa, but they can both cause symptoms. So I, I want people to feel better as promptly as they can. So if they're both not right, I would just judiciously treat them both, but not so much treat them in a sequence because they're not, they're not occurring for the same reason. They're very different situations. Okay. That's a flower field right there. Yeah, it is, especially for me. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that one again. I'm going to, in the yeah. archives, I'm going to just repeat. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go back in the archives multiple times <laughs> with this show and listen again and just sit there. <laughs> Oh, well, and then, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Dr. C. Well, I was just going to say, in the, in the book, The Adrenal Reset Diet, I showed that just by, just by timing foods, and just by timing your foods in a strategic way, 
you can help to fix that cortisol rhythm. And that doesn't matter if your cortisol rhythm is too high, too low, or backwards. You can bring it back to a good range with something as simple and harmless as adjusting which foods you eat at which meal. Hmm. Yeah, I heard you talk hmm. about um, about uh, carbohydrates and, and having them uh, towards the end of the day when you have mm-hmm. uh, adrenal fatigue. And, you know, that's something that, of course, women, you know, that we've always, I've always been like, I'm not going to have carbs at, at night when I go to bed, you know, because the weight <laughs> issues and all that stuff. So it's, it's a it's a really big point. It's a really big deal. I mean, once Tiffany and I started talking about the fact that you mentioned that, I, I, ever since then, because of you, I have carbs at night all the time. What What are your experiences with that? It, it helps. It helps me sleep. It helps me not have cravings, and, and it, it makes it makes things a lot better for me. I've you know, been I think feeling a lot better. I'm really glad you hear that. There's So a wrong way someone could do that is take a diet that, you know, maybe is not working already and then pile in some bad carbs on top of that any time of day. <laughs> you know, that's, that's going right. to cause problems. That's going to cause just weight gain and issues. There was a really right. good study done. See, so many, so many studies on diet, they rely upon questionnaires. And I can't think that well of what I ate yesterday, you know, in terms of like perfect accuracy. And, and most of us really can't. So some, some studies that are really exceptional are those in which people are fed in institutions, like controlled settings. And there's one really well-done study in which military workers who, you know, all their meals came to them from the cafeteria and they were monitored for how much they ate when. So a big group of military workers that was somewhat overweight and had higher cholesterol and inflammation in their blood vessels and risk factors towards diabetes, they were, they were put on one, one exact amount of food, but one group got all the carbs at night, one group got all the carbs spread out throughout the day. Everyone got the same calorie load. The only difference is when they had the carbs. And that one change alone caused very big, large amounts of fat loss, weight loss, lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure, lower inflammation in the blood vessels, healthier blood sugar. So that can make a big difference. And yeah, just, just piling on processed carbs on top of a diet that's not working is just going to cause problems. But being strategic and looking at it in the context of your whole diet, just, just timing of the carbs can help to re- reset that cortisol rhythm. So true. Mm. It's so true. I'll tell you, food and for I, me, Dr. C, is the difference between, I, I kid you not, I, I would love to do a documentary on myself, you know, because the, food for me is the difference between even keeled and energetic and clear brain and out like someone has drugged me. It's insane. The and we're not talking I don't, you know, go crazy. We're just talking about simple changes, you know, in my food or choices or you know, nothing nothing, you know, I don't go to McDonald's and have a super value meal, nothing like that. I'm just talking about gluten is my nemesis. So I would love to hear your take, and I, I do try to avoid it as a general rule because most gluten makes me feel like death. It, for whatever reason, shuts my brain off. But that doesn't happen with all gluten, and, and Dana and I talk about this all the time. It, you know, certain types of gluten or forms or amounts or whatever, I don't, I don't have the same problem, and then certain ones I, I'm out, like three, four hours, like someone's drugged me. So my question to you is, is give us a, a take, and I know we, we're running out of time and, oh, my gosh, the things we want to ask you, but how do you feel about gluten, if there's any way to sum that up in a, in a Dr. C <laughs> uh, answer? 
Right. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a real problem for sure. And a, a big thing is really having just an ongoing conversation with your body and seeing how, how you're affected by things. Not everyone thrives in the same diets. And I think we can already just assume that we've, we're, we're, not, we're, talk, we're not talking about, you know, Big Macs and Twinkies and Doritos. So, you know, right. if we're just talking about simple foods that our grandparents could have eaten, not everyone does best on the same types of foods in the same amounts. And we've got two, two main categories of differences. They're genetic and they're immunologic. And there's also a third category of digestive. So genetically, there's good data that we have different needs for particular ratios of protein, fat, and carb. Some people really will do well low fat. Some will not. Some do very well low carb. Some do not. And a lot of people can, can go to some extent either direction. So there are some strong data points showing that. The APOE genotype is one of the most studied. You know, immunologic, there's very real things like celiac that are pretty underdiagnosed. And there's debates as to how common they are. They're maybe 1% to 3% of the population. That is more common among those that have thyroid disease. But it may be a little less common than some might think. Um, some of the most, the, the highest numbers I've seen have argued that celiac may overlap about 10% with thyroid disease. Most papers I've seen have said probably like five to seven percent overlap. So it is more common in that population, but it's but it's not everyone. The other consideration is digestive. There's been a lot of data about the the FOD the FODMAP diet, for example, and how certain types of, of carbohydrate residues can cause changes to the flora. You know, there was there was a big study that was retracted on it was it was looking at whether or not those without celiac disease reacted to gluten containing foods. And it was redone and it was retracted because some people, like you said, reacted to some versions of gluten, but not others. And it seemed that the, the FODMAP or foods that were highest in certain types of, of small chain carbohydrates was a stronger predictor of that. And some gluten foods have higher, higher FODMAP sources and some do not. So it is a process of really, really personalizing that. And there are better ways to know in terms of uh, checking the genes, checking your immune response, checking digestion. Those are testable things. A pitfall, a pitfall about dietary change is that, you know, anyone who's on a very restrictive diet will start to get less capacity to digest the foods they're avoiding, whether or not they, they need to long-term. So here's an extreme example. Imagine somebody has been a raw food vegan for 10 years and they did it for ethical, spiritual reasons. If you sat that person and gave them a plate of barbecued ribs and made them finish that plate of ribs, they're going to have a bellyache. <laughs> and that's, right. that's, not a valid, that's not a valid test for a pork intolerance. You know, that's just because they had to do, you know, they had to walk on a broken leg, so to speak. They had to do something that they haven't right. done for a long time. <laughs> and that's, that's how oh digestive tracks work. Oh, my gosh, that makes work. perfect sense. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, 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 feel, I feel badly when I hear someone say, I've cut out all these foods and I haven't, I can't digest anything. It's getting worse and worse because somewhere along the way that may not represent a problem with their genes or their immune system. That may be just their digestive resiliency. And there's the data is so strong that we're better off having more nutrients and bigger variety of foods rather than fewer nutrients and less variety of foods. So I think it can be a vicious cycle to where someone says, oh, I had this symptom and I, I've cut this food out and I do better, but now when I have that food again, I get more symptoms. So as important as it is to see symptoms better for people, I sometimes get worried about someone restricting their diet so
solely based off of symptoms because they can get boxed into a nutritional corner with no food left. So, so yeah, the whole issue about food reactions and food issues is real. I think it's great for someone who's really having questions or struggles that way to personalize that and look at, look at some hard data and, and maybe even expand back some food categories they've cut out. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of legumes, for example. And there's this, there's this theory that legumes have phytates and lectins and that they could somehow cause autoimmune disease and kill us. But when we contrast that theory from the data of populations that eat beans and legumes, well, they have lower rates of autoimmune disease, they have lower rates of cancer, they have lower rates of heart disease, they have lower rates of colorectal cancers. So people seem to do better even though the theory says otherwise. And whenever a theory comes up and fights against reality, we want to go with reality. <laughs> so, right. so yeah, I'm a fan of cutting out what you've got to cut out, but doing it very cautiously and ideally doing it with a strategy to where you can expand back to a more full diet at some point. Okay, I want to I want to I'm having a flower field moment, but I want to I want to cover something really quickly because you said you're a big fan of legumes. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I I read or feel that that I was that was not good for me. And um I live in a beans and and country uh, beans and rice country, <laughs> Dr. C. I mean, that's basically the staple food here. And I haven't been, uh, I know everybody's diet and everybody is different, but I just wanted you to just repeat a little bit about what you think about legumes and, and, and that because I, I need to hear it again. And I don't want to go back to the archives. No, I, I want you just to, to reiterate that so that I, so that I can understand and, and so that everybody else can too, please. Well, so probably more, than, more so than any other food, beans are rich in very specific types of, of good carbs called resistant fiber. And there's a type of bacteria called Bacteroidetes that they encourage the growth of. Bacteroidetes helps the immune system, it helps blood sugar regulation, it lowers autoimmune tendencies, it lowers inflammation. It does a lot of good stuff. But if you don't have a lot of Bacteroidetes and you get it really stimulated, you'll get a bellyache. You know, you'll get gas and bloating. And many have mistaken that response saying that, oh, wow, I didn't digest that food that I haven't had for a while. I didn't digest that well. Many mistake that for not being able to digest that food. And if those things happen, if your diet is such to where small amounts of food you're not used to set you off, you know, one approach could say never to eat that food, but another approach would be, hey, but maybe that food's good for me. And maybe you could add in tablespoon doses daily for a few weeks and not have issues with it. As far as the theory that beans cause autoimmune disease or cause leaky gut, that's a theory that many have repeated. But when we look at the actual outcomes, if we see well, what happened to people? Did that actually happen or not? You know, did that, did that set of directions to the airport actually work? You know, not just here's a set of directions, but did they work or not? So if we look right. at populations that eat legumes, they have less autoimmune disease and they have less colorectal cancer and they have less heart disease. So it seems that those are actually helpful foods to have, not based on theory, but based upon population outcomes. And, and again, yeah, people can be... People individually can be different, and sometimes there can be ways that someone reacts badly. That's just what it is. But I would encourage someone that if they have had problems with beans and legumes to really don't take it at face value, but maybe just have a tablespoon a day for a few weeks and see if your flora changes or improves or adapts, because for many that does. That's been studied also. There have been some papers done on those who were bean sensitive, and that exact protocol was used, starting with, with pinto beans, to be precise. So just a few beans a day for a little while can inoculate someone and allow their flora to do better. And the, the shift in the flora is a positive shift. 
Okay. That is really, really interesting. Very good to know. I'm in a flower field moment. Tiff, are you there? I am here. So it sounds to <laughs> me, Dr. C., just, just real quick for the listeners, that it sounds to me like you're not a big fan of exclusionary diets. Long term, I'm not. You know, they're, they're not sustainable. We look, at, we look at our hardest for someone to change their diet even like one or two ways and to expect someone to live on so few foods. And, you know, I'm not a fan of the idea of uh, our diet being uh, that we're not adapted to foods that, that came about in the last eight or 10,000 years. Honestly, there's not a food that we can buy that's the same as it was 10,000 years ago. You know, our lettuce mm-hmm. and our beef are not the same as lettuce and beef were 10,000 years right. ago. You know, right. there's such a thing of modern lettuce or spinach did not exist. So people say grains are bad because they've changed. Well, everything has changed. And people say that our genes can't adapt that quickly. No, they can. The gene experts say they can. We can adapt in a matter of a few generations to changes. And they've also said that we've been eating grains and legumes for probably, some have argued, a million years. Most argue at least 60,000 years. So, yeah. Wow. And, and and I'm going to start eating beans again. And I live in a beans and rice country, and, and my husband's listening to the show. He's actually in the States right now. And he's, Hi, Trav. Uh, you know, yeah, and he's definitely thinking, uh-huh, I told you so, because he's, he's said the same thing. He's, beans are good for you, babe. So <laughs> thanks all, a lot, Should we all Dr. sing it? <laughs> should we all sing the beans? Beans, beans. That's right. That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> Uh, I love being so I'm hap- so happy that you said that, just truly. And it, and it's interesting, too, because while we're talking on the show, we have a thread going with our Thyroid Nation radio team, and everybody's commenting about beans, and now everybody's going to start having beans again. So look what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk all day to you, and it's so oh, interesting, you know, all the different guests all the different guests that we have, but like, I feel like with you, it's been a little, it's been so amazing because you feel like a dictionary. It, it, it's a, I feel like in class and it's a science <laughs> class or something. And I'm really, really interested in it. And I just want you to keep talking. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. So we, we thank you. We thank you very much for joining us and coming on today. I cannot tell you how much uh, we've enjoyed it. So, very my, my much. Wow. <laughs> yes, just, and, just wow. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. Oh, this was wonderful. We don't want to let and, you go. <laughs> no, we don't. Can you tell? <laughs> let's, let's, let's tell everybody where, we, where, where, where they can find you, Dr. C. You know, easy thing, D.R. Christensen, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-S-O-N, drchristensen.com. That's my central hub. And, you know, we've got some free... Uh, free recipes from the Adrenal Reset Diet, like 60-some-odd recipes. So someone can even just look at those and get the ideas behind it and get started on it themselves and get their cortisol back into a good rhythm. Cool. And you're on Twitter and AlanNMD, IntegrativeHealth.com, IntegrativeHealthCare.com, correct? Correct. And basically pretty much everybody that's – yes. that everybody that is listening knows who you are. So I think they already know how to find you, but I just wanted to throw it out there. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was a wonderful wonderful day. We really appreciate it. Have a great Sunday. Thank you so much. Take great care. You too. Bye. 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 Bye.
Oh my gosh! Wow. wow. I know, right? I, I just wow. We do this so often <laughs> at the end of our shows, and it just makes me so happy that we're doing this. I hope everybody appreciates it because I it just it's wonderful, and we I get know, so, so much great information and. And it feels so personal, you know, like he feels like he's talking to our us, you know, our audience. It he is, feels like he's does. talking to you, you know, like it's different, you know, when you see him on the summits, which are great. The Hashimoto's Institute was fabulous, but it just seems more personal and, and just wonderful. And he was fabulous. He is a wealth of knowledge. I'm still completely blown away by how much oh, no. iodine is in thyroid medication. So three grains, you're at 390 milligrams, I think I have to go back and look at my notes, but 390 milligrams of iodine just in your three grains. I, I'm floored. I mean, I know, right? I am too. I am and too. And it seems so, it seems like such a, a piece of information we should have really known. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't <laughs> seem like it should be that big of a wow. Admitted. My name is yes. Tiffany Melanage. <laughs> and I did not and know that. I did not that know. Is, I know. It's amazing. Amazing, right? And and beans, the magical fruit, you know? Mm-hmm. I love I beans. Just, beans have been huge for controlling my blood sugars. I, I love beans. Yep. 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 So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big bean so, person. <laughs> that sounds kind of scary, but okay. <laughs> oh, oh, you don't want to know what was going through my head after saying that. I think... Mm-hmm. No, no, no. We I think we do. Okay. Um, anyway, let's close up this show. It's absolutely fabulous. Right. I can't wait to go back and listen to it in the archives. And we always, always, always want to give a shout-out and a thank you to our amazing Thyroid Nation radio team, without whom, mm-hmm. of course, this show would not be possible. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And as I just told Dr. C, everybody's commenting and helping us along the way. So we want to thank Laura Schooneman and Raina Kranz, Melissa Phipps, Blythe Clifford, Penny Jensen, Sarah Downing, and Shannon Garrett, Autoimmune RN. And definitely check out their their bios and their information on the Thyroid Nation radio page. They got some really great stories too, some Thyroid Thriver stories. So check mm-hmm. that out. Mm-hmm. And make sure to also follow Thyroid Nation at thyroidnation.com. Also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at the Facebook group, Hoshes and Graves Thyroid Nation Radio Talk Show. Or just Hoshes and Graves. Or Hoshes and Graves. Because <laughs> the other one's just a mouthful. And be sure to tune in next week. We'll be talking live with Lorraine Cleaver. She is the main advocate over there in the UK, and her uh, site is Thyroid Petition Scotland, and she also has a UK, it's a UK Facebook group. But she is just over there doing and her amazing. own thing and trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's trying to to make some change and and get some things going on over there. And I know we we spoke we spoke to Helle not too long ago over there in in Denmark. And now we're going to hear from. And then we spoke to some some wonderful people, uh, uh, Julie Ching and Tracy King from New Zealand. And now we're going to cover UK. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a really great fun show. So be sure to tune in next week. And I know Lorraine's going to cover B12, one of my favorite, favorite, oh, favorite subjects. Yeah, yes, she is. Cool. I'm really excited about that. Mm-hmm. All right, we want to remind you always that wellness is a journey and takes continual maintenance and evaluation, which I love. Dr. C pointed that out so 
many times. We're all individuals. We all have our own journey. So make sure, please, to always listen to your own body and be mindful of what it is telling you. Amen. This is Dana, your thyroid nation, Gringatica from Costa Rica. And Tiffany with GratefulGarden.biz. Bringing the collective voice of thyroid thrivers worldwide so that together, united we heal. Bye, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye.